Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Lios enchim anyevu. Greetings, everyone. May the Creator bless you all, and welcome to my podcast, the Good Do E Medicine Podcast. I'll be your host, Pete Rodriguez. All my native people stand Welcome, everyone, to the Good to E-Medicine podcast. We are here live on Clubhouse recording this interview. My guest today is Shirley Francis. She's an indigenous award-winning filmmaker, cinematographer, editor, musician, world traveler, entrepreneur. She's done a lot of things. We met here on Clubhouse and uh, we've grown to be... Oh, there's Shirley. Yeah, I like your music, Shirley. Hey, Pete. I was just doing the intro. I did like four takes already. (laughs) You're listening to Vicente Fernandez? Yes, I am. Nice, nice. You know what happened today, right? Today, today or yesterday? Today. No. He is no longer with us. Oh, no, I haven't. I just woke up and um, had some coffee and that's it. No, I didn't. I haven't even checked anything. I just got my coffee, got in my cold little office and hit record. Oh, wow. Oh, that's a nice. This is my homage to Vicente Fernandez, the mariachi really you know he's really well very well known well around the world you know that's nice nice intro this is awesome (laughs) this is cool so today is sunday december 12th so vicente really i have to check twitter i get my news off of twitter because everything on twitter Uh, is truth (laughs) not fake news it's not fake oh yeah vicente fernandez is trending Yes, February 17, 1940 to today. 80 years old. That's just amazing. Yeah, I just saw that. Awesome. So um, I'm going to start off with my language. Yeah, that's um, perfect. If there are Navajo people, Dine people in the audience that are listening. Yeah, it's a Hello, everybody. My name is Cheryl Lee Francis, and I live here in Flagstaff, Arizona. I am earlier, uh, just a while ago, I, that kind of sound funny, I introduced myself in my Navajo language. I started off by addressing my clan. I am from the Yucca Fruit people. I am born for the Zuni Edgewater people, which is my father's side. And on my father's father's side, he is from the Red House clan. And this is interesting. I have a complication when I have to identify my grandfather on my mother's side. So I have an adopted grand 
father who's from the Salt clan, but it was always unknown. Here's a mystery and unknown of who my real maternal grandfather was. And he was never revealed to my mother. He was never revealed to a lot of our family members. So uh, when my mom, even to my mom's passing and my mom's mom's passing, she never kind of let out that truth. So it's always been an unknown. But uh, people keep saying I should take one of those uh, DNA. What is it? Mm, a DNA uh, test? Me, me and you DNA, whatever it's called. <laughs> I forget the names. <laughs> to find out what could I have been a quarter of me. Um, I guess I have a, an inkling of what I could have, I could be, but it's um, still unknown. So, uh, and uh, even even with my my life story, my introduction, there's always mystery. I guess. So, who is Shirley Francis? Oh, Three fourths of me and my clan. I know exactly who I am. A fourth, I have an idea, but um, I'm just gonna let it sit there for a bit and see what festers from it as as my life moves on. <laughs> Does wow. that make sense? No, that's 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 awesome. I learned something. Thank you, Shirley, for for that nice intro and welcome to the podcast. It's You're been, welcome. I've been trying Thank to you, get you that's on the awesome. podcast for a while, hit and miss in real life. But yeah, thank you for being on the podcast. It's um awesome to have you here finally. But um yeah, so This is great. I, can I really I, appreciate your show. Can I ask you what the what do you think the inkling is that quarter percent <laughs> or or no you know we can I, why not? we don't have to why not uh let me see here that inkling i think i gotta write a story about this too um there's a lot of great surprises in my life that i'm gifted with um so on my mom's side there's this mystery and then on the other side on my father's side he comes from a very, uh, a very strong, in, in my, in my culture, in the Navajo culture, a very, um, I don't know what, how to explain it, but he comes from a long line of strong women. And mm -hmm. I say that because, you know, in, in our history for the Navajo people, uh, we journeyed on the long walk forcibly. It wasn't one we chose. From 1964, we were, um, the Navajo people were taken from parts of Arizona, um, which wasn't even state yet, taken to the New Mexico territory of Bosque Redondo, about over 300 miles, and placed in a fort, Fort Bosque Redondo, and they were there for four years. And so in 1868, they um, were then, you know, returned but they had to walk mm -hmm. back again and this trek this walk is not one that uh, historically has been documented in a sense uh, visually as we have uh, movies today it is a very um, intense memory for a lot of the elderly that um, had remembered and it was always told in our culture you know what's that place Huerte, is not a place to remember and to talk about it was a place of despair. It was a place of sadness. It was it was torture. And mm. to bring your mindset, because, you know, our, as a being, 
in our spirituality, Navajos believe, you know, any parts of your harmony that is displaced or, you know, placed in unbalanced um, thought really impacts you physically. So those generations then were really looking out for today, today's generation to not do that, to not think about it. And unfortunately, as the education of the white man has come, we are now all learning about it, or we've, it's been written in books or documented in army records, military records. And it was, um, you know, along the lines of the still, the, 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 again, the structure of how this country dominated a lot of our indigenous communities and, and an attempt to eradicate us. And it's, it's a harsh truth that still um, not a lot of people, not a lot of Americans recognize. That trauma, um, unfortunately, stays with our communities and it is it is what we see today and, and how we still need to address that. But from that journey actually comes hope. It can come strength. And that's where the story of my father began. Um, my father's grandmother, my great-grandmother, um, was actually born at Huelte. And when she was four years old, her and her twin sister, they they made the, the journey back to Dinetka, um, to Navajo land, when they were four years old, little girls, little babies. And mm-hmm. there's a, a famous painting, if you can ever find it. <clears throat> it is the signing of the treaty with uh, Navajo treaty with the United States in 1868 and of course there's no photograph uh, but there's uh, as far as I've seen a photograph but there's paintings that were um, drawn uh, of the uh, people in attendance and off to the side you will see um, two native women they were like sisters and uh, they are dressed as Zuni. So when I addressed my sec- my father's clan, Zuni Edgewater, um, the twins' mothers were Zuni, and they had children that were Navajo, and they were adopted into the Zuni uh, into the uh, Edgewater clan. So that's why we have Zuni Edgewater as a clan in Navajo. And the, next to these uh, sisters are the two twins, or the twins, not the two twins, the two. <laughs> the one set of twins and um, those are my father's grandparents my great grandparents so I often when I see that photo or that painting I'm reminded that if those two little girls came back for me to be here today that has to mean something that should mean something I need to make sure that I've uh either shared that hope story or that I've done something to represent the family that I come from. It's powerful. Not a lot of people were able to make it back. A lot of their families um, had uh, families lost. So it is something to remember when you have your history like that to to have meaning because it places that into your, into what you do every day, meaning into your life. So there's my father on that side, and um, my mother, um, as amazing as my mother 
was, you know, I had mentioned I had lost my mother a few years ago and she was the most powerful woman in my life. And I think a lot of mothers in people's lives represent that. Women are just so amazing. Strong mothers are amazing because they are the providers. They are the protectors. They are the they are the the ones who cook for us and feed us and nourish us. At least we hope a lot of our our friends and families have um, good uh, representation as as a parent like that. Um, some families are are not as fortunate, but uh, my mother was all of those things. My mother was a great woman. She um she was a teacher. She was a weaver. She was a seamstress. She was a welder. She was, oh my goodness, a, a bookkeeper. Um, she made, um, she was a, she, she did jewelry, silversmith. Wow. She did a lot of things on a basket weaver. Oh my gosh. So from that, from my mother, um, I represent all these, these great, uh, talents and gifts from, I guess, both my parents. But I think your initial question was, what do I think that that quarter of, of my missing gene on my mother's side would be? <laughs> Well, I think, um, you know, during a time when my mom was sick and there was a nurse that came into her room and I, um, I was with my mother the whole time. She, um, at one point needed a blood transfusion. And so the nurse came in and she, um, had ordered it and immediately had told another nurse, you know, she needs, um, old blood. And I remember asking the nurse, why did she order old blood? And the nurse said, oh, well, I worked in Chinle IHS. I've worked on the reservation and your mom's Navajo, right? I'm like, yeah. She says, I know. She kind of assumed. She says, I know that most um, Navajos are already old blood. So if your mom's Navajo, she'll... And I'm like, she's not old blood. I'm like, she says, how do you know? I said, because I'm not old blood. Mm-hmm. My father is. My sister is. And so... <laughs> She looked at me and she looked back at her chart. She goes, you're right. She's not, oh. She goes, your mom's Navajo? And I said, well, yeah. And she says, well, most Navajos don't have old blood. I mean, most Navajos don't have um, A blood, A type blood. Mm -hmm. And um, so what does that mean? She says, well, I don't know. But, you know, Regionally, if you look on like on sites or if you go to the internet, you can kind of find out where a a type blood resides. I'm like really, so this was like maybe I don't know, fifteen, ten years ago or so. I go on the internet, which was still not a very uh, it was still coming out uh, on the internet, and um, but I did. I, I looked at uh, geographically where that came from, and it was not from the, the majority of A-type blood people are, are not from here. Um, let's just say they're, they're across the ocean in a northwest region territory of states <laughs> in Europe. So um, I thought that was kind of interesting. And then as life moved on, I, under, I started to think, I wonder if that's why I like playing... Irish music. <laughs> oh, interesting. 
I wonder if that's why I like classical music. Or I wonder if that's why, you know, I'm drawn to these to these other types of cultures um, so easily as though if, if it was just natural. I don't know. But um, to say the least, you know, to say the least, the, the, that if it is, uh, could exist, but the majority of who I am and what I represent is still very much Navajo. My belief and my thought and my spiritual practice, it's tied it's tied to being Navajo, 100%. So, I'm with my mother, the same. She was, she was way, she was more Navajo than a Navajo, if, if that ever existed. But she, um, she, I, I can't, I can't explain it. Just amazing um, being, amazing person that I am. Um, I was uh, gifted as a parent. Does that help? Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Shirley, that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. I love it. Irish. There are a lot of people in this world, and and I found it mostly from our Native community that, you know, aren't so nice, you know. And um, I don't like saying that, but I've just experienced it, and I've seen it. And I wish we could have conversations about that. Do you want me to, you don't want to keep that, right? Sure, we can keep it if it. If, if, if it's something that you have a question about, absolutely. Okay. Are you recording this? It's been recording. I know it's okay. stopped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, if you, do you have questions about it? Do you, ask me. Let's, let's, like I said, what else, what else do we have to lose? I could keep the story forever hidden and no one's going to know, but that's, at that's, the same time. That's the reason I started. Do you have any personal stories that have brought you the biggest lessons in your life? Yes. Maybe to the first that brought me the biggest lesson in my life was and it 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 stayed with me for a very long long time so being born and raised on the Navajo reservation at the time before it turned into a Navajo nation and it's still I guess to some is still a reservation that environment uh, growing up, I grew up in a town called Kianta. And growing up there, um, all I had known were Navajo people. All I had seen, all my friends, all my family were Navajo. And for a very long time, that's all I thought existed as far as my little world. When my parents decided to leave Kianta and move to a border town, um, community, the community of the city of Page, Arizona, that uh, right there uh, made a shift in my life completely. Uh, living on the reservation is, as most people can remember, it's it's not when if you don't know what it's like outside the reservation, where you, what you're at is everything you need. I mean, I didn't need a lot of things. If we needed something, we'd go to town and get groceries and we'd come back. Um, if I needed to play with toys, it was either a hand-me-down or you'd make it make it out of, you know, whatever, whatever's around, uh, blocks of wood, uh, two-by-fours cut up into little blocks or playing in the dirt, playing with uh, your little puppies or kitties that you have, um, Making, you know, your imagination is, is, is developing in this area and you, you make it what it is. And so um, I, I loved where I grew up. The one thing that 
started to change though was when I um we were we had technology. I've always grown up with TV. Can you believe that? Back in the day on reservations, there was always TV. There was always HBO or Cinemax, and I don't know how that happened. <laughs> but somehow, uh, cable TV was always available on the reservations if you had ex- access to it. And uh, in the trailer park that I grew up in, that's where um, I saw a lot of the outside world. So I could see the Olympics. 1979 Olympics. I could see. Uh, goodness, I grew up watching Gilligan's Island, The Love Boat, Boozum Buddies, all these crazy Stanford and Son, uh, <laughs> all these um, shows that most people, some people who didn't have a TV on the reservation, uh, didn't have access to. And but the reason why um, the community, the trailer park that I had. Uh, access to a TV was because it was a part of the coal mine community. Uh, Peabody Coal Mine developed this trailer park for its workers. And so a lot of the um, coal miners work, uh, lived there. And my my family um, was a part of that. Um, my father worked there at the mine. And so this trailer park community that the uh, Peabody Coal company ended up putting together also had a pool so I learned how to swim most reservations most communities didn't have access to a swimming pool so you have a lot of native people who don't know how to swim because um, there's no water but this um, this trailer park community had it so a few of us were privileged to have a swimming pool and learn how to swim but again uh, this environment um I remember listening to radio. One of my most favorite radio stations I love listening to was country music because it came from Cortez, Colorado. It was uh, call letters were KRTZ, and on KRTZ was the first time I had ever heard the violin. It was fiddle music from the band Alabama, and this song called Mountain Man. Is it Mountain Man? Mountain music. Um, mountain music would come on. And there was something about that, um, about that song that just, it just spoke to me. <laughs> and again, I don't know if that's where the quarter part of me, like, came from, but holy smokes, I, I just awakened that I just knew I wanted to play. Well, there's no violent teachers on the reservation. Music is very difficult to have sometimes, and if you did have it, it was in your older grades going into high school but as far as specific instrument like violin I mean being first second third grade there was nothing like that so wanted it in my life didn't think I'd ever get it but when my family moved from Kianta to Page that is where um, it changed so a couple things happened when we moved to Page at the time huge huge um, early 80s it was a border town. Uh, it was racist. It was a very racist environment where the community um, majority of the religion is uh, of the Mormon church. But I remember being only two Navajos in a class full of non-native people. First time I'd seen white people. So many. Very different mm-hmm. from where I went to school. And that first... Um, when we moved, we moved in the like spring. I remember it was like March, April. So it was like the the last quarter of the school year. 
and they were doing end of the school year tests to see if you can graduate to the next grade. And because I had come in at this very end of the school year, um, I didn't do so well on these tests that would allow me to go to the next grade. So I remember the um, teacher bringing in my mom and telling her basically that these tests were taken and that, and I remember just holding on to my mom and looking at her and at the same time, there was something that caught me from this conversation. Um, basically, it was the whole, uh, Cheryl Lee is not going to be able to move on. She's going to be retained and retake the third grade over again. And I remember my mom, her face was, was kind of, you know, what just happened? And why is my child not being um, graduated to the next grade? And I just remember this conversation that the teacher had saying something about how, you know, she really is not going to amount because she's Navajo. And I remember looking at this teacher like, did I just hear this right? Is my English good enough to pick up at third grade that I was just told I wasn't going to amount to anything because I'm Navajo? It was the first time I had heard something like that in my life. And that's when I felt discrimination for the first time, a prejudice because of my skin. And it just, instead of, well, it kind of did two things. It made me feel little. It, it really made me feel like I wasn't worthy. But at the same time, there's a part of me that has always known that if you tell me I can't do it, I'm going to do it. And it really pissed me off to hear a white woman tell me that I couldn't be someone because of this. Oh, I was so angry. I just remember feeling, I felt, well, two things. Like I said, I felt yeah. little. I felt uh, ashamed because those kids that would go on ahead of me would know that I didn't make it and I wasn't smart enough like them. So for a long time, I felt, you know, kind of like I wasn't worthy. But that second year when I went into the third grade, um, that teacher really, um, whatever she threw at me, I just knew I needed to excel. And I have to, I have to give credit. There was this Chinese, little Chinese girl that ended up in that class with me <laughs> first time I had my first Chinese friend her family was the one who owned the Chinese restaurant in town and um, she was really good at math and I remember doing these tests and she would sit next to me but for some reason you know when someone's going to compete with you you just have an instinct and this, this little Chinese girl was um, was competing with me to finish these math these, we did these really quick 100, do 100 math problems in a certain amount of time um, race. And uh, we would compete against each other back and forth, back and forth. And after a while, I got so good at my multiplication tables because of this Chinese girl. <laughs> Not to be stereotypical <laughs> as far as Chinese knowing math, but they were pretty good. She was pretty good. But she also... it. Like schooled me to be even better, and I'm like, I know I can do this. Well, that same girl, that same Chinese girl, who turned out to be my friend for a long time during my school grade school years, also told me we went to a, a graduation in um, when we were, gosh, probably fifth or sixth grade, and I remember sitting in the stadium because a, a an older friend of my, the friend of family, was graduating high school, and I remember seeing these these people wearing these uh, gold 
uh, what are those cool things over your, your, your neck when you're like high honors in high school? And I thought, why are they wearing those on their robes and the others aren't? And then somebody mentioned, well, that's the valedictorian. And I'm sitting next to my Chinese friend and I'm like, I want to be that. And she looked at me. And so she said it to me, you can't because you're a Navajo. I'm going to be it. And again, that really pissed me off. Like, what the heck is this? People keep saying Navajos can't do it. (laughs) Well, that fed me even more that by the time I graduated high school, I became a valedictorian of the high school. So that thing that you talked about, about a lesson in life is when people tell you you can't do it, um, it is something that has always been a lesson where you challenge yourself. You have the confidence. You find it deep, digging deep down in your gut to um, to prove people wrong. And and I really didn't like that. Um, I wasn't seen as as somebody that can do that. But a lot of that confidence also came, I think, from again the ability of my my parents supporting supporting me, supporting us as a family, and doing the best they can. I think that's one of the, a a big lesson that a lot of parents uh, should also provide to their kids is having their ability to, you know, exercise their confidence and giving them a boost of of what they can and um, can accomplish in life. That goes a long way. If they can learn that when they're young, that helps them in any obstacle um, in life. Valedictorian. That's Dan <laughs> goes that's, into my second. That's awesome. That's a really good story. Thanks. I I'm, hope it's not, I'm not boring you. No, I'm like listening to him like, oh, my God. That's I'm like, I really hope I'm not going to bore your listeners. No, this is big. Good. Isn't his name big? Big. Yeah. He says I sound like big. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. It's that bad. It's too funny. But um, it's it's something else. I think it's a it's a fine line. I think we all go through life. Um, I guess you could choose to just continue to say an imposter syndrome. But at at some point, when when can you stop saying that? When do you feel mm -hmm. comfortable enough or do you ever feel comfortable to finally say, you know what, I'm just perhaps it's that point when you realize you could just not give a care what anybody else thinks and you're going to accomplish what you want to do in this lifetime and have no regrets. Right, 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 right. I also want to talk about your filmmaking projects. Anything yes. coming up? But we can. Do you have another story you want to share with us? Biggest lessons? Oh in your life? well, yeah. Um, so right after that, that huge accomplishment mm-hmm. of, of something that changed my life of, of that lesson. But also, it it can go right back down to um, paralyzing. Um, fear and sadness. So right after, just before I graduated high school, um, I already had experienced the loss of um, an older sister of mine. And that was the most impactful, uh, one of the most impactful uh, lessons I ever learned in my life. I'd never experienced um, death before, never um, had a family member pass on at a young age. Uh, my um, My sister was um, was young. She was early 20s. She was going to school um, in college in Phoenix. And I remember spending my um, the spring break in the spring with her, my spring break, 
for the last time. And when she returned back after her finals, she was complaining of um, some pain. Well, we learned uh, not very long after that, uh, her cancer had taken her within three months. And it was not even enough time to process what just happened and what is this disease and why did she have it when she was a healthy individual, um, never um, took in bad substances, was an athlete, just just like that. I mean, there was no um, example of this type of thing happening in my family which I could only result to like maybe that one unknown gene, the quarter missing gene, maybe it came from that. And it attributed to this passing of my, my beautiful older sister. Well, when she left, it was devastating. My whole family just, we didn't know how to process it. Um, it's my last year in high school. I did everything I could to kind of keep going but it was mostly for my for my mom um my dad was still working my mom though was very hurt very sad i mean can you imagine losing a child before your time and you have to deal with that how to process that you know dealing with all your shoulda coulda wouldas or you know it it's devastating to see your parent go through that and i remember having to to try to be strong as strong as i could but doing that sometimes can also be harmful because the perception is you got it together or that you can handle it. When a, a lot of the time I needed my own counselor, I was still a kid. Um, I needed somebody to speak to me or understand life or to have questions just about death. Mm-hmm. And even that in our cultures, um, particularly for Navajo, you don't speak about it. You know, it's, it's you have a certain amount of days to mourn. And then you're supposed to just accept it and move on. And that's not, it's not uh, as easy as, as it's supposed to be, as the, as the teaching is. Um, I guess you should have family member family members around all the time or helping you. And in, in our family, we became a nucleus in a sense because, uh, because my parents, we had moved farther out of the reservation my extended families, um, they stayed within. And that gets more complicated with history and story. If people understand you're having extended families that you don't get along with and um, you're not on the same the same side when you're uh, making decisions about life. So they chose a different life. My parents chose a different life, but it gets even more complicated when it comes to land and ownership and who's owed what and it gets really messy. So my parents decided, you know, okay, we're going to have this other type of a life and we're going to provide for our family and our kids this way. So how I grew up was a whole, is a very different than a lot of my extended relatives did. Um, with that, my, um, the loss of my sister, it, it was, devastating for years. I was 19 years old and I remember I just, everybody else was getting attention and I wasn't getting any attention. I was, I was helping everybody feel strong and uplifting them. 
and I was wondering, where's, where's my uplift? Where's, who's going to pay attention to me? And I remember going, um, I had to just pick a college at that point too, after I graduated high school. And I, um, I wasn't in the mood to go to school, but because I was given all this money, um, scholarship monies to go and awarded all these great things, um, I just, you know, I didn't know that you could actually take a deferment for a year. My my counselors in high school never said, maybe you should take a year off. You can still hold off this. I wasn't given that advice. I didn't learn about that until years, like decades later. I'm like, you bastard counselors, how come you didn't do your job and look out for me? <laughs> um, so they, I just went to school and I just picked one. And one that was close, but not far away. In fact, I was going to, I had chosen all kinds of schools and accepted to every one of them, um, from California to Nevada to uh, Hawaii to Arizona, and I ended up staying in Arizona, and I chose University of Arizona in Tucson. Um, and I, 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 I can bring up that story later, but uh, being accepted at the U of A, I came down to Tucson I became a wildcat. And uh, from there though, for the next three years, I was not a serious student. I really um, was trying, I was crying out, like I need some attention, I need help, but nobody, everybody thought I had it together. I changed majors at least seven times, but I was also going down a route that, um, which I found out later because I ended up having to get some counseling and to understand all these feelings. I ended up trying to live a lot of life between the years of 19 and 22. So my sister passed when she was 22 and I realized that I was, I, you know, the fork in the road, you take this one and it's going to lead you down all these good things, but you take this other one. to see what goes down that road. I took the other road and, um, or I took that, that wrong road. Because I wanted to experience as much as I can. Because I thought I was gonna, I wasn't gonna make it past twenty-two. That thinking, that mm-hmm. psychology, I found out through other counselors was a lot of siblings who lose their their older siblings at a certain age. Mm-hmm. The younger one will feel like um, they're they're gonna also pass at that same age. That's what I that's what I thought was gonna happen to me. Mm-hmm. So I ended up trying to experience everything I could within the little amount of time that I thought I had left. But then when I turned that age and beyond it, nothing happened. And I thought, oh, <laughs> well, I made all these crazy mistakes. Can I undo them? They were pretty bad. <laughs> um, and academically, oh, my goodness, I messed up myself so bad from being a valedictorian to like what it was when I graduated. Oh, wow. And I thought, what a mess. I was so again, ashamed, like, what did I do? <laughs> and it took me forever to change, um, to change that around. I eventually graduated from the University of Arizona with a history uh, degree, a major in history, and I minored in American Indian studies. And I got my history degree because I just took so many credits. I apparently history was just something that I was drawn to. And I think it was just mm-hmm. mostly about learning about, um, American Indian history, native American history. They didn't teach that when I went to high school. So I was just so drawn to learn about everybody else's tribes and, and what this is all about in this country and understanding policy and, 
understanding the terms. It was just something I, I really enjoyed. But when I graduated with this degree, I did not feel I was strong enough or even wise enough to be a teacher. I was in my 20s and I thought, what do I know at my 20s to be a teacher of history? So I changed it up. And finally, um, I guess an epiphany kind of hit me. I was sitting in uh, one of those what are you, those um, apartment rental offices looking for an apartment um, in Tucson. And I think it was actually around, I want to say Grant and Alvernon, somewhere around there back in the day. And I remember waiting for the person to help look for an apartment. Um, I was waiting in the waiting room and there was a booklet on the floor or on the table, picked it up and, um, oh, you know, Pete, there's a whole other part in there that I, I missed, I skipped over, but I don't know if I even want to bring that one up. <laughs> this is the part of where I was engaged and then I broke it off. <laughs> oh, <clears throat> you were so. engaged? Oh my goodness. Yeah, I was engaged. Is that Anyhow. part of the 19 to 22 years? Yes. <laughs> Blur? That's fuzzy yeah. and blurry? It's, it's not fuzzy and blurry. It wasn't a Las Vegas thing, that's for sure. But it just wasn't, it wasn't the right time. It wasn't the path I was supposed to, at the moment, go down. And well, moving forward after graduating and all that. And, and then I ended up working at the UVA. I worked at the um, the Nugent building inside. That's where the admissions office was. Mm -hmm. And I was a credentials, evaluators for, a credentials evaluator for the UVA. And I remember sitting in that cold brick building, like stamping, like accept or deny people into the UVA. And I thought, what am I doing? Because right outside those doors, all these kids were on the lawn in the mall, hanging out in the sun, dancing and their shorts and <laughs> you know just hanging out and having, they were living a life young life that I should be living and I was in this dungeon hole I just couldn't see myself forever working this job it was awful so ended up at the apartment locator's office and looking at this table coffee table pick up the book and I just flipped to a page and immediately it drew my eyeballs to it and that right there was that calling. So many years ago before I graduated high school, my mom, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And I didn't know when my mom always said, I think you do really well in communications. You should do something with that. And of course your, your parent who raises you or observes you knows your characteristics, your personality. They, they have an inkling about what you're good at. And I thought, no, 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 no. I, you know, I don't want to do that or I couldn't see myself doing that because that fear, right? Someone's mm. going to judge you or are you good enough or right. um, being the imposter, you know, that thing. Well, here I am confronted and this magazine, when I opened it up, it was um, it was like a lifestyles magazine and in the middle of the, of the booklet was a story on the local PBS station, KUAT in Tucson. And they were talking about the students who worked in the studio at the PBS station. And I remember just looking at, and I'll never forget that image of a student behind a studio camera and a person in front directing it on this stage, on the studio stage. And I remember, wow, that the next day I went straight back to the U of A. Well, mind you, I had graduated. I'm not a student at the U of A, but I went back to Modern Languages building. 
I go down to the basement and I talk to whoever. I'm like, I have this magazine and there's this story and it says that you hire students or you hire uh, people to work here. And I looked at this guy um, who was the, uh, he was the, um, like the manager of that department. And I told him, I looked straight, in, straight into his eyes and I said, I've never held a piece of equipment in my life. I don't know anything about cameras or or, or editing or any of this, but I think I can do it. And so he asked me, are you a student? I said, I just graduated. He goes, well, go next door to the versus office, get a non-degree seeking student uh, status and, uh, and come back. So I did within like an hour, I go in, get my non-degree seeking status back, um, non-degree, what is it, credit, mm-hmm. <clears throat> come back. And I tell him, he says, okay, you're hired. Wow. And I'm like, just like that? He goes, yeah, you're a student. So, all right, let's let's start training you. I had, I was just floored. Like I could not believe that I was going to work in this studio space. And I got access to all these PBS writers, producers, um, videographers, um, access to this equipment that I had seen. And I just remember from, the years, uh, 2001 to 2003, I took every job, uh, shoot that I could take that any of the reporters went on. If anybody couldn't do a job, I raised my hand, let me do it. Or if somebody didn't want their, their slot to go out with a videographer to learn, I took it. Um, it was just amazing. I, I just loved it so much. Uh, I was very appreciative to to those individuals. Um, the person who hired me, his name was Matt Karate, and I'll never forget him. My first, uh, first guy who hired me to do this work and he trained us. Like I've never seen people get trained in this, in this field. I mean, he had tests for us to identify each light bulb. He tested us on the Fresnels of each light bulb. He tested us on the light board. He tested us on different mics on the proper positioning of your mic. When you have a a guest, um, understanding how to, uh, make a person feel comfortable in the green room. Um, everything in the studio, you work from the very bottom, um, as a camera operator. And they had those huge, big, um, station, um, rolling cameras that they, it was like mm-hmm. used from the 60s, 70s cameras from the old CBS stations or something. <laughs> and, um, we learned all of our, our hand cues, learning about teleprompter, the basics each, and then you graduated into each level all the way up to working upstairs to being a director, assistant director, working the audio board, uh, being, being a director of a show. And so at the time, the show was Arizona Illustrated. Um, and uh, Reflexionis was the Hispanic uh, version of Arizona Illustrated at the time. So working on those shows, um, there's, there's the production aspect of putting that show on and broadcasting it, but then there's the obtaining the stories going out in the field and getting the stories and creating them coming back with the videographer and the reporter producer and editing them in an edit bay. So there's two aspects of working in a studio and then working out in the field. So, um, as a beginner, worked, learned everything in the studio. And once you've done that, you get to work out in the field. Um, and that was fun learning from the best, learning from the best videographers. And just most recently, 
my trip to Tucson a few months ago, um, I got to meet my same mentors who taught me everything at a shoot I did with, uh, with them at San Javier. So that shoot that I was there, um, I was telling you about Pete, that's who they were all the guys I worked with from people from the desert speaks from Arizona illustrated all from KUAT. Um, these were the guys that, that taught me how to do what I do today. So I remember that. I love all those shows too. Yeah. Arizona Illustrated, The Desert Speaks. (laughs) David Yetman, and then David Yetman turned into his his show um, In the Americas with David Yetman. I did um, coloring, I did editing for that show. So um, very awesome uh, moments to to learn from these, these guys. They were just great. So, you know, but one story I do want to share was mm-hmm. when I eventually um, knew that this this work was something that I had passion for. That I just loved waking up to do. It is kind of a little bit, a bit about that. You know, they say, you know what you're meant to do when the first thing you open your eyes, you just, you can't think of anything else but that. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember uh, taking a shoot. I was asked to go on a shoot with um was it ted robbins and martin rubio and they were doing a story on Borstar, and the um <clears throat> border patrol on the on autumn nation so we'd have to drive to cells and the story was again on on this unit Borstar that they were the helicopter unit that would find um the um, my Mexican migrants coming over the border, uh, being led by a coyote mm-hmm. to uh, the United States. And if they, and this was during the summer, hot summer months of Tucson, that if um, sometimes the the coyote left them in the desert, they were they'd have nowhere to go. So this unit was the rescue mission to go find them and make sure they nothing nobody perished in the desert hot sun and, and but they'd have to be transported back to the border so the story was following this this unit all day we went we went you know to each stop where they were around cells um community around that reservation towards the border and the very end of the the shoot the idea was um you know if we ever came across a group of individuals in the desert, um, would that happen? Later on, as the evening hours were coming, um, the Border Patrol did say that, you know, they had spotted um, possible, you know, heat recognition of mm-hmm. some some bodies, you know, something might be happening that night. So we stayed longer than usual. And I remember getting really excited, even though this is probably a dangerous situation, but I remember getting really excited. I was the audio... Um, grip operator I was following the videographer and then you know uh, the reporter was was there um, making writing his notes and everything so about midnight or so we ended up at this spot where we were given night goggles and making sure that um, getting getting um, prepared by border patrol like in this area you might find you know we might be coming across some people so we had to get our gear on as as 
tight packed as we can, have my mics ready, the videographer had his camera, and they gave us these night goggles, and we ended up in, in the desert walking. I remember walking, everything's green, you know, because you're looking through the night vision. And then they're like, get down. Next thing you know, get lower down. Next thing you know, we're on our hands and knees, like crawling through the desert. And we come across this camp. It, we, it seemed like it was just, there were people just there because there was fresh water and there was fresh, you could just tell this camp was fresh, but there was no people. And it was just amazing to see like, what am I doing? I'm this little Navajo girl, Paige, Arizona on her hands and knees <laughs> on the Tonawatam Desert. <laughs> With night Anybody going to believe me doing this? <laughs> That's awesome. And no, nobody knows this story. Nobody, you know, I you keep these things, these memories to yourself. And I, I just remember it. that was a defining moment where I thought, holy cow, who gets to do a life like this? No one would ever believe me. And um, nothing, though. We didn't come across anybody. Well, it was time to call it a night. It was almost one o'clock in the morning. We packed up. We... We, we um, went back to the trucks, the Suburbans, and we were headed back down to Tucson. We leave cells, not but like five miles outside of cells. We get the call back. The reporter gets a call back from the border patrols mm-hmm. telling us to turn back around. You have to, you know, you have to. We just came across some people. So about five miles outside of cells, we turn around and just north, um, that group of people that we had come across their camp, they were right there. And they they gave they gave themselves up, they surrendered. And this group of young um, Mexican um, citizens were there, just tired. They were so the I, I can't forget the faces that they had. They were just so tired and scared and like at the same time relief that they they got um food coming and um it turned out that they were abandoned they didn't know where to go none of them spoke english so they all were placed on a on a bus back to the um back to Nogales and um Martin who who spoke spanish you know starts to translate for the reporter and they start telling their stories and the reasons why they, they gave up everything to leave Mexico. Just the fact that there was more opportunity in the United States. The fact that they felt like this was the dream place, that they could um, have a better life, that they could send money back home. And it wasn't a safe place to be there. They talked about all of their struggles and they were young. These, these, they were young people that they would sacrifice everything to get through that desert. And they were there. They were here mm-hmm. in the United States. It's just they didn't have enough um, to keep moving forward. Well, that moment was the defining moment where I thought stories, amazing people have so many stories. Mm-hmm. They just want to be heard. They just, we should be telling them, we should be listening more. It was the most profound moment in my life where I finally felt a sense of purpose and peace and just an overwhelming strength to know um, how powerful media is. So powerful, if done in the right in the right way.
Cheryl Lee, do you have any upcoming projects or anything you're excited about coming up in 2022? I know we're almost ending 2021. It's already going to be Christmas. And do you have anything you want to share with our listeners? Any new projects? I know you were at San Javier and I got to finally meet you in real life, IRL. That was so cool. And I saw some of the stuff you were doing at San Javier here in Tucson. But I know you're an awesome filmmaker, but do you have anything coming up or you want to share with anyone, all our listeners? So uh, this is where it gets really interesting as far as my career uh, doing the work that I do. And people always ask, what is it? What is is your title? And that's a, you know, easily I could just say, some people would say uh, filmmaker. Or, um, that's what your bio says. <laughs> Award winning filmmaker. Let me just go back a little bit. So, after the whole Boar Star and getting my, my experience with uh, PBS, I worked many years in Tucson doing that work and I ended up working in radio. I worked for Citadel Broadcasting, I worked for the ABC affiliate, and I shot sports for UVA's intercollegiate athletics for seven seasons. So I was the girl that was, um, you know, I started off working as a grip, holding this wireless wand around with the videographers as they shot sports. Um, And I worked my way up all the way up to um, directorship where I was running the Jumbotron. Um, So I worked for all the basketball games, men's, women's, gymnastics, um, football games. I did um, volleyball early 2000 years I was I was one of the only women doing that at the time for McHale Center uh you know Lou Olson at the time uh was was always just right on my right side when I was sitting under a basket <laughs> and um people it's kind of funny I early years of of Mike Bibby or Andrew um Andre Agudala you know like these guys that turned on tur- turned out to be the NBA players and um, amazing to see that they were just people I was recording for, for, uh, the Kale Center's Jumbotron. I did that for many years and I realized that that's, you know, freelance work was coming in and I, I ended up leaving PBS to work for a commercial station, um, and then doing <coughs> freelance work with the <coughs> channel, travel network, people coming in, uh, making commercials. I was making content majority for a non-native audience um even the content we were making was always they were always white people mm-hmm. in in these shots and it dawned on me to know that as the years kept going that's all i was creating was content for a specific audience that was not native that bothered me eventually i made a decision to finally leave tucson after many years of being there and gathering all this awesome experience and knowledge i needed to go home I wanted to start creating films and and movies about my Navajo people, about where I come from, and the stories that my my mother um, shared with me growing up. My mother was the beginning of of being a storyteller. She's the one that was the holder of all of our knowledge and um, influenced me greatly growing up. Um, that's how I ended up back up here up north mm-hmm. was deciding that I wanted to use this craft in a, in a positive way. 
uh, to highlight our Native American communities. Um, but I learned really fast that the realm of filmmaking and independent filmmaker um, documentarian was the road I had first chosen because I had placed my history degree and the the experience I got from PBS together. I could be this great documentarian, but I learned really fast that you can go poor <laughs> being a documentarian. Um, it's a lot of your own money. It's a lot of your own time. And I thought, I have bills to pay. I need gas money. I need food. And I remember seeing the guys that I worked with. They were never struggling down in Tucson. I mean, these guys, these these guys were making money. They're mostly white guys. And I thought, how the heck do they do this? Well, I realized because they were a business. They were a video production service. And that's how they worked this, this area of, of filmmaking. And these jobs that I was working on them, somebody was the boss. Somebody was the main producer. Somebody was the main uh, service provider. And they had a client and we were creating content for that client. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's what that was. You know, start adding the two. This is a business. And I thought, mm -hmm. well, if those guys could do that. And I saw what they were doing. How come I can't do it? And it was that, that I thought, well, if these guys can, I'm going to do it. Eventually, I um, I went down that route. I left the being a freelancer and doing thing under everything under my name and my social security number. And I registered with the Arizona Corporation Commission and I registered with the IRS and I got an EIN number and I got my business name registered with the state. And I became official as an official uh, video production service uh, in 2013 actually. Oh, okay. And CF Productions started and here in Northern Arizona was where I, I stayed my home base in Flagstaff. So I wasn't on the reservation enough. I actually wanted to move back onto the reservation to a little community called Tuba City. But I learned really fast when I was um, starting to work there and, and re-get, you know, re- generate clients is um, one night I was, I got footage, I got content, I came back, I was editing. Well, I needed to upload it because all the, um, an eight, a two to three minute promotional video uploaded from Tuba City, Arizona on the Navajo Nation. Took eight to 10 hours to upload. Eight to 10 oh hours. Um, that was a lot of wear and tear on my poor little computer at the time, little 2007 MacBook burning its little engine all night long. <laughs> you know, that yeah. fan moving really fast, poor thing. Um, yeah, the internet just was not, uh, it's still the same, actually. Hasn't changed <laughs> after all these years. Still the same. It takes about maybe the same amount of time to upload. Um, it's different now as compressions get easier mm -hmm. and technology, but at that time it was really difficult. Um, I could not uh, afford to live in a place that didn't have that, again, that accessible fast inter internet speed. And I wasn't going to move back to Page, Arizona, and I wasn't going to move back to Tucson uh, because I had lived there for so long. My purpose is to stay up closer to my reservation so I could do these stories or create this content that, um, and of course I'd never moved to Phoenix. 
um, Flagstaff became that place. I never thought of moving to Flagstaff. It was a gas pit stop to me. Because I was, my year, early years coming from Page back down to Tucson, that's all I thought of it as. But here I am. After all this time, Flagstaff is that space. I have my offices here and I my hub whenever I have clients across the country I just get on a plane and fly out and I come back here nice. so um, as far as the work that I do going back to that uh, that's what I ended up um, creating after all my years of experience is this company CF Productions LLC and to this day I make um, commercials for mid-sized to corporate entities organizations firms um these, this content is primarily for our Native American communities. It's mm-hmm. born about our Native people, whether it has to do with um, health communications in the health field, uh, to um, educational, to um, training videos. I've made videos for... Um, all kinds of, uh, of clients that I have. I have native clients and non-native clients. I'm also mm-hmm. a contractor for, an independent contractor for Coconino County. So I do a lot of work with uh, the county and their public works department. I've done videos uh, talking about road maintenance. Um, just this few months ago also, um, we did a, uh, a follow-up with our, in Coconino County, there's a flood mitigation um component that was a result of the museum fire that created all the floods uh, because of the last monsoon. So the um, chief of the United States Forest Service came here to Flagstaff and they awarded um, this community with $3.5 million for future um, flood mitigation measures to help those communities that I was telling you earlier in this podcast about those communities mm-hmm. that got wiped out with the water and floods. So I get to meet, you know, all kinds of, of people still in this in this work that I do, from that chief to um, state representatives. Um, I've met all kinds of individuals, even up to the work that I've done with um, one of my clients. They were um, most recent uh, visit was with um, our first lady, Jill Biden had come to Flagstaff maybe a few years ago, three years ago before um, the election of, of her husband's presidency, of Joe Biden, President Joe Biden. A video I did for Tuba City Regional um, actually reached the eyeballs of the Biden Foundation, which is a foundation devoted to um, uh I can't forget exactly the title. It's for cancer. It's a uh-huh. cancer foundation. And they um, basically generate and they, you know, get a lot of the large donations for these um, for these services out to communities. And a video I did for Tuba City um, a few years ago ended up in front of their eyes and that was enough to um, get the attention of the Biden uh, Cancer Foundation, where they came to Tuba City because of this video I created and helped create the first cancer center on the Navajo Nation, which is one of the most um, first 
cancer centers on any Indian reservation in the nation. So a story nice. I had done and I created um, with the, the uh, public information officer from Tuba City Regional. We put our little brain, Navajo brains together and got this job done. And now um, the first cancer center that exists on an Indian reservation was because of a video I created that nice. got the attention of the Biden Foundation. Nice. It's my cat. If you can't, he's behind the door and he's trying to get my attention. <laughs> cute. He's like, come out. Are you done yet? You need to come out. Um, but yeah, you can see that, that work again on, um, on my video, on either my website or on my uh, Vimeo. I have to check it out. Channel. And we'll, we'll, we'll add the, uh, your social media sites and your website at the uh, so notes page that, when the podcast comes out so people can know where to find your work. Yeah. Uh, Vimeo has all of my oh, Vimeo. updated works. We'll have to, you'll have to send that to me so we can add it on the show notes when this goes out. Yeah. Um, definitely. It was definitely a, um, that, that video was about five minutes called going the distance for life. And it won three awards. Um, from um, from the Communicator Awards, it's a uh, a and a system that basically um, is an award system for content creators. Nice. And uh, let's see what else. Um, that work was done a, a few years ago. A lot of the work that I've done has gone on to uh, win recognition for my clients. Um, another video that I did for Coconino County uh, Navajo Nation Road Maintenance, that won a Coconino County um, Achievement Award from all the counties in, across the country um, that was recognized for, for their work here. Uh, it was also awarded um, a best uh TV from uh, Savvy Awards, a Best TV Award. Um, I've done work for the National Indian Health Board, and they've received awards for their content. Uh, again, all this can be seen on my website or on Vimeo, my Vimeo channel. And then uh, most recently this year, I've accomplished, oh my goodness, <clears throat> I've done videos again for um, hospitals, uh, for residency, um, new residency applicants to hospitals. Uh, I've done, so that's health communications. I've done a video on um, flood mitigation. Um, I've done one for Hopi Credit Association. I've done videos. Oh, most recently, there's one that. Um, that just it, it keeps getting um, hits has been the uh, radiation exposure screening program. Again, that's from Tuba City Regional, where they um, created um, awareness. The Radiation Exposure Compensation Act is ending next uh, next summer, and this Radiation Exposure Compensation Act is important because it was deemed in three states um, a bringing attention to those individuals that were exposed 
to a lot of the um, atomic bombs from Nevada mm. that came of this um, nuclear toxin that hit a lot of the reservation, um, created a um, high cancer um, exposure. So the screening program, again, is it's to make sure that the people who are in these certain areas get checked and have some preventative measures to help them um, see if they can kind of uh, prevent, have any prevention before anything, um, you know, serious happens. So that video actually, I haven't put it out on my social media, but it's been out um, and it's gotten so much attention that the doctors, the oncologists, and the reason why this cancer center is important is that Navajo Nation never had, and most tribal nations don't have oncologists on their reservation, cancer doctors. The families have to travel hours um, just to be seen um, at, a, at, a, at a specialist um, office. But because this center now exists on the reservation on Navajo, mm-hmm. um, they have two full, full-time oncologists that are on staff and now patients can, you know, be closer to home and get their treatment, whether if it's chemotherapy or radiation done there and not have to go so far away and spend the gas money or a whole day's drive to get somewhere. Um, that video I did for, for that department um, has raised so much awareness that they're booked way all the way into next summer because of the power, again, the power of media and how um, that story was told. As far as future, um, going into next year, I'll be doing, again, more work for the National Indian Health Board coming up. I have work um, coming in. I I guess it just really depends on (laughs) timing and what people need, but I'm always looking for a great story. And at the same time, I want to start doing work for other individuals has always been my goal for CF Productions. But then there are those real awesome, like storytelling stories that I should be sharing and recreating for an, a larger audience. Whether that's uh, going into movie making, filmmaking yes. world, um, I need to really see what I can do and, and, and exercise that part of my my skill. Um, you know, and Pete, I never really even we never really got into um, getting into music making, but. <laughs> Um, that's always a part of my future still too. That's neat. I, I do yeah. want to, I think you, I want to see you make a, a movie or a documentary. I could see you doing that. Yeah. You know, I are you in a series? something it's, it's right in front of me and it's I just like it everybody would, else. It's just right in front of you. I think it'd be amazing. Oh, I've actually reviewed, um, I actually help um, a lot of upcoming filmmakers with their, um, with their projects. So a really good friend of mine, um, that, that is an upcoming filmmaker who does a lot of work, does a lot of film, um, Ganu Benton out of um, the East coast. Um, he comes out constantly with really great scripts and he's out there doing his movie making and putting him into film festivals. And I met him in LA at one of the film festivals there. And we've just always been really, um, uh, good, good comrades in a sense when it comes to movie making. Mm -hmm. Um, I just reviewed one of his most recent, um, films called mirror man. Um, definitely recommend Ganu 
Gnu's work. Um, and also a young and upcoming um, filmmaker out of New Mexico. He's actually originally from, I think, from a Loop, Flagstaff area, but he now lives in Albuquerque. Um, Keanu Jones. He has a he has projects that he comes out with. Most recent, he had a job. He had a project that he wanted feedback on. Um, these guys will send me their work and ask for my opinion and ask, you know, what do you think and can you give me some pointers. So on both of those projects, I've actually um, given my two cents and thought, well, could you do it this way? Or would it be more powerful if you shifted this mm-hmm. over here on the timeline? And um, both of them seem very um, happy to get actual usable feedback that would improve their work. Um, and I'm glad to you know, share that information with others uh, because storytelling in a, in a sense is these days it's so accessible because we have social media and we have mm-hmm. our cameras, our phones, um, and people think they can just automatically be called, um, you know, a videographer or cinematographer or a filmmaker, but it, you still, there's still a lot of skills behind all of that. You, it's a component of understanding what is your story about and who is your audience? What do you want them to do when they see this or how do you want them to feel? And there's a lot of, things to consider when you create content and it's not, you know, just stuff you kind of put out there. There's a lot of pre pre-production that goes into to making anything that goes out. So I really enjoy watching um always watching films or documentaries because there's always there's always some message and you know how how do you feel when you get out of the theater? How do you feel when you when you uh watch it on HBO Max or something. <laughs> There's always something and it's inspiring. So I guess that's the end is is our main point is to you want to inspire your audience. Just like we all want to be inspired with our lives and, and our purpose. So definitely if it's something that I can help provide or give insight to, I'm willing to to share my my story, share my insight, my experience. The fact that I work in media, particularly uh, the population that I really focus on, our Native American um, tribal communities, when it comes to their marketing tools, and I and I really hate even using the word marketing because it's not a um, I'm not seeking out you know to exploit if that's the word that I I feel like is used sometimes with marketing, but more of uh, coming from our tribal communities, their chance to finally set the record straight from their perspective, sharing what it looks like in Indian country, on their nation, on their reservation, telling people exactly, these are our people, this is what it looks like, this is who we look like, and how we, we maneuver through our challenges. So... I think that's one of the biggest things that I um, I really want people to kind of understand when it comes to the work that I do. Uh, but it's it's it kind of it's almost um, as Native people we always have to live in two worlds. It's like uh, that fine line in the middle of the of the road. You have the line, the yellow line. You jump on one end. You're living in European Western society, and then you go to the other side, and you're in your tribal nation in your culture and maneuvering in in that area and trying to keep that going. I think that's the most 
uh, concerning part is knowing that of the 574 tribes that are recognized here in mainland United States, each year, each generation, we're losing so many of our um, numbers. We only make mm-hmm. up at least 3% of this country, if not even less now. And I am concerned with the the longevity of what gets passed on. It's like the telephone game. If If we keep, as we're going, we're at that very end where how it started isn't where we, isn't what it, what it was. And is that right? Is that wrong? I I think our young people are striving for knowledge to try to keep it. But at the same time, the ones who are the teachers are also um, maybe not have been taught or were passed down that knowledge because of the, the, um, you know, interacting with other, other people's other races and so you lose a sense of authenticity of of what that um indigenous perhaps indigenous community knew but you know it's all um impacted by our 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 this fast-paced life technology changes everything um having computers having easy accessible Starbucks across the street around the corner it's convenience which is really changing how things are are moving that brings me to my last question Shirley ready by the way this has been an awesome interview thank you for being on the podcast um, I hope so I hope I've not bored you no or not, I'm like I said listening too much. I'm not I'm like just listening wow edit 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 <laughs> But brings me to my last question. <clears throat> oh, well, wait, a- Pete, and all of this is off the record. <laughs> what? <laughs> I After the whole podcast is over. This is all off the record, everyone. <laughs> Just kidding. You can't I've given edit Pete permission. None of that. <laughs> Even the crawling through the desert with night vision goggles? All the best parts off the record. <laughs> All the best parts. All right. So this brings me to my last question because it's high noon and I know we have it stuff is. to do. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Last question. Cheryl Lee, in a hundred years from today, Cheryl Lee, in the future, if someone Googled your name next to the word accomplishments, what would you wish the results to be? I am here. I'm gone. You're gone. <laughs> Everyone's gone. What would my legacy be? Oh gosh. I know it's it's a it's a good one. It's a. It's, I have to think about it too myself. Like gosh, he was a. He sounded like big. Reservation dogs. Reservation. <laughs> My legacy, my legacy, my legacy. Well, at the moment, um, so I've, so all the work that I do, mm-hmm. um, up to this point, everything that I've created, I've always taken into consideration that this, this is going to be a work that will exist long after already. 
from the work of helping communities obtain a cancer center to helping communities obtain funding um, to even just sharing the story of of our um, of our purpose and I think at the end in a hundred years I I hope that the work that I'm doing continues to inspire people that it's it's possible to have a goal to accomplish all the dreams that you have even if people tell you you can't I want people to see that the work that I do was done by one person, one woman who was able to use the tools at her fingertips, who was um, skilled and in, in, in taught by some of the best um, storytellers how to use these tools in a way to help other people tell their stories. So a lot of the work I do is really done by myself, a one-woman band. I literally am a producer, a director, a cinematographer, a photographer, an audio operator, a lighting tech, um, an editor. I do everything from pre to post, everything you will see out of CF Productions. I find the client, I speak with them, I help coordinate scripts, I help coordinate a story idea, we run through it, um, we get the people we need involved that will best represent a tribal community. Um, I bring multiple cameras if I have to, multiple tripods, I bring my lighting equipment, I bring my skills as an audio operator, all my mics, um, green screen if I have to, backdrops if I have to. I've lugged all this stuff with me locally, um, places I've driven to, or 100-pound gear I take with me on a plane and I fly across country. I, I've done it all. I bring content back to my office. I edit, um, I edit it all to put together a story for, for our audience. So when people look at the work I've done, I didn't hire out or I haven't hired out people to do this work for me. And that was done on purpose. I mean, at some point I will, in order for me to grow as a company, um, I would love to have a studio. I would love to have uh, a larger uh, space that I should be uh, maneuvering in in the next year or two to have more edit bays, to have... Uh, a production system to have my own universal to have my own universe uh, system like Hollywood to tell these stories and it's not impossible um, finding the capital um, having the ability to find the uh, skilled crew to do it uh, I'd love to still um, in the next year or two in the next summers uh, provide a training for our Native people to really showcase the tools that are available. That they can, like, if I had an iPhone that I have today, what it could have done for me 20 years ago. Oh my goodness, you can do so much. 
today I still, I have used my phone, um, getting video in my larger projects. Um, I've edited using my iPhone with the apps that are provided. Amazing tool. So I want to be able to show and continue to pass on this knowledge to really, you know, show how important it is to tell our story. And I think that that's that hundred year component is really focusing on my craft as skilled, um, and, and a skilled filmmaker, but really in a sense of helping others tell the story and not just, uh, and not just, um, working for other people's story, but telling my own story and seeing if that will also be a part of this larger legacy that I leave behind. Inspiration and hope is, is the answer to a lot of, um, who we are as human beings. And everyone's looking for that, especially in times of despair and so much negativity. And, you know, what are we all fighting for? What are, what are we all doing here? What is my purpose? Everyone has these questions. So if there's something that um, creatively that we can create or talk about, like you and this podcast, which is amazing to listen to other people share their experiences, I think that's what connects us and helps us take that next step and have that next um, adventure to try something to challenge ourselves and and be um, be more than what what we even imagine ourselves to be. So I hope, again, going back to inspiration, I hope that that's what, uh, in a hundred years, the work that I do will be felt by others. Thanks, Cheryl Lee. You definitely inspire me. Just wanted to let you know. And I'm going to get that <laughs> iPhone 13. <laughs> yes. Update. I think what you have, iPhone 8? <laughs> Shush. <laughs> Shut up. Serious audience. He's got that. iPhone 8. He will upgrade. <laughs> I have a, the first iPhone SE. Oh my gosh. That's. You I, might as well just try to no, you know, hack yeah. your beeper. You remember the beeper? <laughs> no, I'm definitely going to. You did inspire me. So I look at your work and I look at. The, I love your, your answer to the question. Inspiration, hope. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I hope I get that out of the podcast as well. Inspiring and uh, motivating young people or anyone. Thank you for being on the podcast, Shirley. We're gonna, this was definitely an experience. We're gonna, I, really, um, I really don't share a lot. And because I know you and I feel comfortable speaking with you, Pete, I've shared more than I probably shared with anybody. <laughs> that's wonderful. Thank you for, for, for sharing and uh, taking some time out of your day life that's what well, i want I defi that's definitely what i want from our guests when i do this interview i want them to share everything pretty much let me know you can uh, i want to talk to so many other people also there's so many cool things right now that are that's going on and like you mentioned um 100 years from now people can listen back or look at your films listen to podcast episodes, listen to Cheryl Lee, Pete talk about things. So that's my legacy, but that's not my my interview, but that's what I want to do. That's what I want to, 100 years from now, I'll be able to listen to this. So I was thinking like, you know what? I need to do a podcast so I can leave this. And not only mine, but like other 
people's stories. I want them to hear that. So they'll be out there for many, many years to come. So thanks, well, Shirley. I apologize that this has gone on for longer than it should have, and you have to edit. So <laughs> should I have Do said some something stuff. like, thank you, Pete, for having me on your show? No, that's fine. Got some good outro music. I didn't even mention being a musician, the fact that I played mariachi for Mariachi Arizona at UVA. I did it. No. Or the Philharmonic Symphony at UVA. You'll have to come back on the show and you're famous filmmaker and, and have a series uh, and And I play Irish music. And making and lots I play of fiddle money. music and classical music. If you want to have a band in the dun, you gotta have a fiddle and in the ukulele. Band. Wow, so you didn't tell me any of that stuff. I know, I didn't. <laughs> These are the outtakes. Yeah, these are the yeah, outtakes. So I play all of those instruments. Pretty cool. I can see you as a film, like making a, a series or a film motion picture, working on one. You know what's funny is so during the pandemic. Years, next couple of years. You know what? Thanks, Pete. I'm going to focus on that. I think so. You know, I don't know if you want like that type of, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I can see that. Definitely. You just got to take baby steps. First, it just starts with a story. You know what? I'm going to motivate you. You can't do that, Shirley. I don't, I, I don't think you can do that. Nah. <laughs> Stop doing that. Nah. Because nah. I will prove you wrong. Nah. <laughs> nah. I don't think you have what it takes, so... Shut up. I guess maybe that is it, right? <laughs> You're not good enough. Nah. You're Navajo. You're not gonna, like, whoa. You're not going to be no famous director. Nah. Nah. You tell me I can't do it. Nope. Yep, that, not gonna that's do my it. motivation. <clears throat> nah. Tell me I can't do it. You can't do it. Jeez. That, that just, like, bubbles up already, and I know you're, you're you wanna just fight? teasing. <laughs> you want to you wanna mic fight? I'll fight you fight. right now. Ouch. Ow. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Put awesome. that in. Yeah, takes. I don't know about Hollywood stuff, but yeah. Hollywood's yeah, Hollywood is definitely a place. Um, you know, the one thing that I I definitely have uh I need to work on, and most all people do, they have something to work on. I always have lots of things to work on. Um it's just like everybody else, writing. You know, mm-hmm. um, I like, I've always worked with people that can organically just say something and I work with that, but to actually script something out for someone to say something or project what that person's feeling, it takes time. Mm. I, um, I definitely observe like with all films, with all, um, any documentaries are different documentaries are usually on the fly the interviews are are just questions like this podcast and you grab the the gems those sound bites that are mm-hmm. that are great from that interview 
but for movie making or entertainment value or, you know, just creating um, that kind of entertainment is, is a whole lot. It, it's different. We need to like do something for like the holidays. You know, we should have like a Christmas clubhouse <clears throat> room. When? What day is it? I'll, I'll host it. Don't you even know how to be a real Indian? I guess not. <laughs>